The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. And today, the next passage we come to is Acts 18, 1 through 17. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you praise and glory for your faithfulness, Lord. Just as you were faithful to Paul, Throughout all the trials and challenges that he faced in his ministry, Lord, even so, you are faithful to us, faithful to your promises, faithful to your word, Lord. We thank you and praise you. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this text, that you would help us to see all that you would have us see, Lord. Help us to see not only... Um, to develop an understanding of what happened, but to see how it connects to our lives, Lord, and the message that you have for each of us, 
even as individuals through this text. Lord, please speak and move and accomplish your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been working our way through Acts, we have seen Paul proclaiming the gospel in city after city throughout the Roman world. His efforts are even more amazing when you consider the persecution he endured in just about every city he visited. I mean, this guy was a machine, right? In fact, the perseverance he exhibited is so remarkable that it can be tempting at times to view him kind of like Superman, you know, as if he were essentially indestructible and not subject to the weaknesses and and limitations that ordinary people have. You know, if Superman gets shot with a bullet, the bullet just bounces right off of him, right? And if we're not careful, that's sort of the way we can start to view Paul as well. And yet that's why I appreciate this passage here in Acts 18 so much. It reminds us that nobody, not even the great Apostle Paul, is immune to discouragement. We all have limitations and weakness and seasons of depression and and seasons where we're just struggling. So I think we all need to hear the words of encouragement that God gives to Paul here in this passage. Now, in some ways, the fact that Paul is discouraged in Corinth might initially seem a bit odd, because at first glance, things seem to be going pretty well with his ministry there. In verses 1 through 3, we read about how he meets a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, who would later become some of his best friends. And not only does Paul meet these new friends in Corinth, but his faithful missionary companions, Silas and Timothy, are able once again to join him. Uh, Paul had been forced to leave them behind in Berea as he fled for his life, but now they finally catch up with him here in Corinth. And not only do Silas and Timothy come to Paul, but they also come bearing a, a significant financial gift him from the churches in Macedonia. Uh, That gift isn't mentioned explicitly in this passage. Uh, We learn about it primarily from 2 Corinthians 11.9 and Philippians 4.15, but we do see at least an indication uh, that this gift was received here in Acts 18. Uh, Verse 5 states that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now, the way the ESV translates that uh, as was occupied is, uh, I believe, a a bit obscure. Other translations say that Paul began to be occupied. So, at first in Corinth, Paul relied on his tent-making trade for income. But when Silas and Timothy come with this large financial gift, he was then able to be fully occupied. He began to be fully occupied with the Word devoting himself exclusively to preaching the gospel as his full-time occupation, we might say. So you would think that would be an encouragement for him, right? I know that uh, I am usually very grateful when I receive large sums of money. I mean, it doesn't happen that often, but 
I mean, whenever it does happen, it's usually a pretty good day. And then, perhaps most significantly, Paul's ministry in Corinth seems to be thriving. Even though most of the Jews do end up rejecting him, he nevertheless makes some significant inroads in the Jewish community of the city. Uh, Verse 8 tells us that even Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. That's pretty incredible, right? The leader of the synagogue in Corinth comes to faith through Paul's witness. And not only that, but verse 8 goes on to tell us that many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So things were happening in Corinth. Wonderful things. The gospel was moving forward. And yet, Paul was discouraged. We know he was discouraged because, as we'll read about in a moment, God has to appear to him in a vision in order to encourage him. And also, later on in Paul's ministry, in his first letter to the Corinthians, after leaving Corinth, he openly talks about how much he was struggling during his time in Corinth. Uh, He states in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 3, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. The cumulative effect of all the persecution Paul had experienced was probably beginning to catch up with him, leaving him feeling weary and depleted. Again, everybody has limits, and Paul was getting very close to his limit of what he could endure. Also, remember that even though the leader of the Corinthian synagogue embraced the gospel, Most of the Jews in Corinth did reject it. Verse 6 in our main passage tells us that they opposed and reviled Paul. And as Paul knew all too well by now, that probably meant that there would soon be a riot and perhaps a public beating and jail time and maybe even an attempt on his life. I mean, it was all too predictable at this point. So it's actually understandable that Paul was battling discouragement, and in today's language, perhaps even depression. So what did God say to Paul to encourage him? Look at verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. These verses communicate to us the main idea of this entire passage, which is that God encourages Paul to continue his missionary efforts by reminding him of his presence, promise, and purpose. Again, God encourages Paul to continue his missionary efforts by reminding him of his presence, promise, and purpose. So let's spend the rest of our time this morning looking at those three aspects of God's encouragement to Paul. First, God's presence. He tells Paul in verse 10, I am with you. In other words, it's okay if 
you're weak. Because I'm with you. It's okay if you're struggling because I'm with you. It's okay if your circumstances feel like more than what you in your own strength can bear. Because I'm with you. And of course, this goes not just for Paul, but for all of us who are disciples of Jesus. Here at Redeeming Grace, we are reminded of this just about every Sunday when we recite the Great Commission together at the conclusion of the service from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. After Jesus commands us to go and make disciples, what does he tell us? He tells us the very same thing he told Paul, right? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, of course, Jesus himself ascended into heaven soon after making that statement, yet he continues to be with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the most critical things for us to remember as we try to live for God and be faithfully engaged in the mission God's telling us, or God calls us to, of telling the world about Jesus. Because there will be some very difficult days. We might at times feel fearful or anxious, as Paul apparently felt as he thought about the, uh, the various kinds of challenges that might be just around the corner. We might also feel weak and overwhelmed and discouraged as we think about everything that's going on in our society. You know, you don't have to be an exceptionally astute cultural observer to notice that our society is becoming uh, increasingly unfriendly toward Christians. Uh, we are gradually being pushed out of the public square and are in many ways becoming outsiders. Yet that's okay because God is with us. And scripture shows us time and time again that God plus nobody equals a majority. If we have God and nobody else, we still have a majority. I mean, just think about the Israelites as they conquered the promised land in the book of Joshua, right? Think about King Hezekiah when he, the city of Jerusalem was besieged by the mighty Assyrian army in 2 Kings 19. If we have God, we automatically have a majority. Yeah, I'm reminded of the early church father, Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria in the 4th century. Uh, at that time in church history, a heresy called Arianism was sweeping throughout the Roman Empire. Arianism taught that Jesus, as the Son of God, was similar to God and like God, but not truly and fully God. Instead, it was claimed Jesus was God's first and highest created being. Uh, the way this was commonly expressed was by saying, there was a time when the Son was not. Now, thankfully, this heretical teaching was formally condemned at the Council of Nicaea, a church-wide council in 325 AD, and typically that would settle the matter However, in this case, because of political interference on the part of several Roman emperors, the debate continued. The emperor Constantine, who had actually been the one that called the Council of Nicaea in the first place, 
became sympathetic to Arianism. And uh, many bishops in the church continued to hold Arian beliefs. Yet Athanasius recognized that this is an issue that's absolutely fundamental to the true biblical gospel. If Jesus isn't fully divine, then his death on the cross can't redeem anyone. And so Athanasius took a stand. He spoke out very boldly against Arianism and refused to accept Arians into his church. As a result, he was forced into exile a total of five times, sometimes for as long as seven years. Yet through it all, he never wavered, even though it seemed at times as though the vast majority of political leaders and even church leaders were against him. He remained resolutely committed to what he knew to be the teaching of Scripture on that critical issue of the, the deity of Jesus. And uh, for this reason, he came to be known in uh, Latin as Athanasius Contra Mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. He was willing to stand against the whole world, if necessary, in a defense of the true biblical gospel. And by the way, his view did end up prevailing in the end, thankfully. And that's the courage and confidence that we can have as well. It all comes back to this understanding that God is with us. No matter what we face, he's by our side every step of the way. Giving us strength. Fighting our battles. And using us to accomplish his perfect purposes. Second, Paul's reminded here in Acts 18 not only of God's presence, but also of God's promise. Of course, there are many promises that God makes to his people, but one of them in particular is mentioned here. After he tells Paul, I am with you, God then assures Paul that no one will attack you to harm you. Now, the immediate application here is for Paul while he's in Corinth. Even though people attacked and harmed Paul in many of the previous cities he visited, God's promising him that that won't happen here in Corinth. And further down in the passage, in verses 12 through 17, we see how God keeps that promise. Look what it says. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. The Romans had a law against any new religion. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime of Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. It was not a good day for Sosthenes. So the Jews do indeed make a united attack on Paul, specifically a legal 
attack, but they're not able to harm him, just as God promised, right? They bring him before this Roman proconsul, Gallio, with accusations that his ministry activities are contrary to Roman law. But we read about how God gives Paul favor with Gallio so that Gallio dismisses the case without Paul having to speak even a single word in his own defense. I mean, what a clear picture of how God is the one defending and protecting Paul, just as he promised he'd do. And by the way, Gallio's decision set an important judicial precedent in the Roman Empire. Uh, This favorable decision would almost certainly help the Christian cause down the road the, the next time something was brought to a court of law. And so God shows himself faithful in protecting Paul so that no one can harm him. Yet even though the immediate application of God's promise in verse 10 was for Paul in Corinth, this promise that no one will attack you to harm you can also be applied more broadly, I believe. In a very real sense, all Christians are protected from harm. If not in this life, then certainly for eternity. Friends, as long as God the Father sits on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning over everything, and as long as Jesus is functioning as our intercessor and advocate at the Father's right hand, and as long as the Holy Spirit dwells within us in order to sustain us in our faith all the way to heaven, then, dear friends, we are eternally secure. We couldn't be more secure than we are. You see, the greatest harm that could ever come upon us is us receiving the judgment that our sins deserve. Yet the Bible tells us that Jesus took that judgment in our place on the cross. He suffered the full force of it so that we wouldn't have to and then rose from the dead as a decisive display of his victory over sin and death once and for all. As a result, Romans 8.1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I in Christ Jesus? Right? Have I ever repented of my sins and put my trust in Jesus as my only hope of rescue? If so, then we can have the confidence that nothing will ever cause us any eternal harm. As Paul says so well at the end of Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I believe that all of that is contained in at least seed form And God's promise to Paul back in our main passage that no one will attack you to harm you. And again, what courage and confidence 
that should give us. You know, religious liberty may be eroding in our country. Popular opinion may be turning against Christians and Christian ideals. Yet we know that in Christ, we're eternally secure. No one can ever harm us in any last. Then finally, not only is Paul reminded of God's presence and God's promise, he's also reminded of God's purpose. The Lord says to him in the final part of verse 10, For I have many in this city who are my people. God had a purpose to save many additional people in the city of Corinth, and nothing could thwart that purpose. Nothing could stand in the way. You know, a couple of months ago, while examining Acts 13, we uh, discussed the sovereignty of God in salvation. Acts 13, 48 tells us about how the Gentiles, or non-Jews of the city of Antioch, responded to Paul's sermon. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you hear that? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That means exactly what it says. God appointed certain individuals to eternal life, and on the basis of that sovereign decree, those individuals believed. Um, it's a doctrine often known as predestination. God chooses certain individuals to be saved and passes over others. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, and especially how that relates to human freedom and human responsibility, you can just go back on our church's website and listen to the sermon on Acts uh, 13, 42 through 52. But one thing I didn't discuss in that sermon that I'd like to discuss now is how predestination relates to evangelism. Uh, many Christians are very concerned that th this idea of predestination will discourage us from sharing the gospel with people. I mean, after all, why share the gospel if God's already decided who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved? And that's a great question. The answer is that God has sovereignly determined not only the end of people being saved, but also the means by which that end will be accomplished, us sharing the gospel with them. We might say that God has not only a chosen people, but also a chosen plan. That plan consists of Christians sharing the gospel. And it's only through God's chosen plan that his chosen people will come to faith. And so that's why we share, right? That's the only way people will embrace Jesus. Because again, God sovereignly determined not only the end, but also the means by which the end will be accomplished. However, there's more. You see, not only does a correct understanding of predestination not hinder us from sharing the gospel, it actually encourages us to share the gospel. And just look at our main passage. You know, Paul, you'll remember, is discouraged 
in the midst of his missionary endeavor there in Corinth. So what doctrine do you think the Lord uses to encourage him? None other than the doctrine of predestination, of course. He tells Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. You see, when we understand that there are people out there who are, as the Lord says here, my people, that is, chosen or predestined, that should inspire us to share the gospel with greater confidence and excitement. Because there's a level of success that's, in a sense, guaranteed. Imagine, for example, that you really wanted to get a certain job. I don't know, maybe you had a, an entry-level position at a company, but really wanted a management position. So perhaps you might look around on a few job search websites and maybe talk to a recruiter and just see what was out there. And maybe you'd even apply for a few positions here and there. That's probably a pretty typical scenario. But if the vice president of a company personally reached out to you and was like, hey, you don't know me, but you know, I've heard about you through some mutual friends and done some research on you, and I think from what I can tell, you would be a great fit for a management position that we have available at our company. Great pay, great benefits, great work environment. Would you consider applying? Well, I'm guessing you probably would put an application, right? Just the, the knowledge that you would have an excellent chance of getting hired for that very desirable position would be a significant encouragement for you to apply. And the doctrine of predestination works in a similar way. Even though we don't know exactly which individuals God's chosen for salvation, the simple fact that God has indeed chosen some people should encourage us to share the gospel. Since we can be confident that our efforts will be fruitful at least some of the time. So that's why having a high view of the sovereignty of God in salvation should lead us to share the gospel more, not less. And should lead us to do it with greater confidence, greater excitement, and a greater sense of expectation. And as we take a step back now and think about this passage as a whole and how this passage applies to us you know, big picture, I believe it shows us that there's always going to be a temptation to disengage from our mission of sharing the gospel with people. You know, Paul's life is an especially vivid demonstration of what any Christian, I think, who's tried to live as a faithful gospel witness already knows to be true, that consistently sharing the gospel with people isn't easy, right? It's not easy to live out our missionary calling. It requires a, an incredible amount of effort and energy and endurance. The temptation will always be there to uh, just let off the gas pedal a little bit and gradually allow ourselves to start, to start coasting, 
And eventually, given enough time on that trajectory, make only nominal and half-hearted attempts at sharing the gospel, if we even do so at all. That's the temptation. That's always there. Unless we make a deliberate effort to remain faithful and engaged in the mission Jesus has called us to, we will always gravitate toward a more comfortable way of living. You know, I came across a story recently that I'm not sure actually happened or not, but nevertheless serves as a sobering picture of what can happen and what often does happen in many churches. Uh, There was once a dangerous shoreline where shipwrecks were very frequent. And so, to help rescue people from these shipwrecks, a crude little life-saving station was built. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted crewmen kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day or night tirelessly searching for anyone who might need help. And they saved many people's lives through their courageous efforts. After a while, this life-saving station became famous. Some of those who were saved, as well as others in the surrounding area, wanted to become a part of the work themselves and were more than willing to give both time and money to support the station. New boats were bought, additional crews were trained, and the station grew. Some of the members then became unhappy that the building was so crude. They believed that a larger nicer building, would be more helpful as the first refuge of those rescued from the sea. So they built a much larger facility and replaced the emergency cots with hospital beds and the basic furniture with much nicer furniture. Soon, the station became a popular gathering place for its members to discuss the work of rescuing people and also to visit with each other. They continued to remodel and decorate until the station increasingly took on the look and character of a club. Fewer and fewer members were interested in actually going out on life-saving missions, and so they hired professional crews to do the work on their behalf. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club emblems and stationery, and there was a decorative lifeboat in the room where the club held its meetings. One day... A large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in numerous boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. Uh, These people were bruised and sick and, of course, terribly dirty. As a result, the beautiful new club facilities were all messed up. This led the property committee to immediately have a shower house built outside, where the shipwreck victims could be cleaned up before coming inside the nice building. Also, at the next club meeting, there was a split in the club's membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether, since they were rather unpleasant and got in the way of the club's social life. A few of the members, though, insisted on keeping life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that, after all, they were still called a life-saving station. But those members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own station down the coast somewhere. So they decided to do that. Yet as the years went by, the new station gradually started to face the same problems the original station had experienced. It, too, 
became a club and its life-saving work became less and less of a priority. The few members who remained dedicated to actual life-saving began yet another station. But history continued to repeat itself, and today that coastline is home to a number of exclusive clubs among, along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the victims simply drown because they have no one to rescue them. What a sobering picture of the way it often works with churches as well. Brothers and sisters, this is why I talk so much about our calling to reach people with the gospel. I know you're probably sick of hearing it. This is why I talk so much about it. This is why we, we put it, our disciple-making mission statement, at the, the front of our bulletin just about every Sunday. This is why we recite the Great Commission at the conclusion of just about every worship service. This is what's driving all of that. If we're not deliberate about staying engaged in the missionary lifestyle that Jesus calls us to, then it's almost unavoidable. We will just become another social club. And I can tell you right now that this area doesn't need another social club. It needs the gospel. And I believe God has the same message for us today that he had for the Apostle Paul in verse 10. That I have many in this city who are my people. And he, but we are the ones that he is called to reach with the life-changing and life-saving message of the gospel.